Hi, it's Helen Hebert with Paper Talk. It's February 2nd, 2017, and I'm in Boulder, Colorado at Jill Powder, Jill Powers Studio. Hi, Jill. Hi, Helen. Um, so let's have a little chat. How I'm curious how you got into paper making. I don't think I know that story. Yeah. Paper. Um, I first heard about it in, it was the late 70s, um, this artist friend of mine, I can still very clearly remember him, running around the corner of this house into the yard where I was hanging out with some other artist friends <laughs> and saying, I just discovered this incredible thing. I, I learned how to make handmade paper. And we were all like, oh, what's that? And how do you, you know, as an artist medium. And I was so intrigued, but he didn't, he wanted to keep it his secret. secret. So, oh. he didn't, so I didn't learn, but I, it, it, you know, made me aware of it. And I started, you know, looking around. And, and that year, I guess it was 78, I moved to Philadelphia. So how old were you? Were you? I was in my last college? year in college. Okay. I was just about to graduate, I think. And you were studying art? I was studying art, and then, um, although I was mostly interested in painting and photography at the time, um, but when I was in Philadelphia, I somehow uh, came across uh, a summer course at Tyler School of Art, and it was for painters, but it was about all the different um, surfaces you could paint on. So it was this alternative painting course, Mm -hmm. and we painted on wood and glass and all these other materials, and I remember, and I cannot trace who taught that course, uh-huh. but they spent a whole week doing hand paper making, uh-huh. and it was before there was any real equipment or easy right. materials, and I think we, I don't even know what we used as pulp, but uh-huh. I was so drawn to the process that like within a year, I had stopped painting and I was only doing paper making. Wow. Um, and so I looked around Philadelphia area, and I found Bobby Lipman. Yeah. And she um, was teaching a class. And so I, she was really my first, you know, true papermaking teacher. Uh-huh. And that was great. Um, and was that just in her studio? I, it was in her studio. Okay. And um, shortly after that, she went through some personal mm-hmm. changes and kind of, dropped out of sight in the right. paper making world but um but she's the one that really introduced me and I think I heard about Dart Hunter friends of Dart Hunter through her okay um and and I think by by like 1980 I had joined friends of Dart Hunter and mm-hmm. I've been a member since and then I found a course um I think it maybe was a night course at University Arts in Philadelphia on paper making. I also can't remember who taught that, mm-hmm. um, but it was a semester-long course, mm. and so we did all Eastern fibers and Western fibers, and uh, mostly two-dimensional work. But I think there was some pulp painting uh-huh. and not a whole lot of equipment beyond that. But um, so that that became kind of my foundation for for my understanding of. Um, but were you using pulp made in a beater? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So Although I didn't have a beater right. at home in my own studio, so um, but I had places where I could could get the right. use of a beater. Right. And then I started going down to um, Pyramid Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Helen Frederick had mm-hmm. opened up her space, and there was, you know, you could just sign up for time to go there and work, um, oh. which I did, and. Um, I also took courses there. I took a course from Helen Frederick. I took 
uh, a course from Lynn Forgash. Uh-huh, um, yeah. On, I met her in New York. Yeah. Uh-huh, yeah, on casting, which was really great. And that really kind of more launched me into doing more three-dimensional work. And then um, I decided to go to graduate school at Tyler School okay. of Art. Uh-huh. and was mostly focused in the fiber department. I was sort of using paper making in alternative ways. So I was, through the fiber department, I was studying uh, basketry and all the old like netting and knotting techniques mm-hmm. and things like mm-hmm. that, and incorporating paper into it. And then I took alternative photography processes, incorporated handmade paper into that. I was like shooting through my own formed sheets oh. as negatives, uh-huh. and, um, and then I did printmaking as well, projects with, with uh, handmade paper incorporated into that. Um, and then Winifred Lutz was there, and mm-hmm. so I was learning her techniques, and um, she was showing a lot in the area, and I got to see a lot of her work, you know, kind of combining, like, wood and paper a lot of it um and learning her casting techniques um and then there was um the philadelphia paper makers guild started in there at some point who started that do you know i I don't know who started it um but that's the only paper makers guild yeah that that i'm in the country yeah Yeah. aware of and i think it's still going i do think so and um so i showed with them for a Mm -hmm. number of years and went to their meetings and stuff and, um, yeah, I continued being a member of them even when I, when I moved out of the Philadelphia area. Mm-hmm. In 89, I moved to further west in Pennsylvania to State College, where Penn State University is. Uh-huh. And by that point, I was doing, I guess in grad school, I was doing a lot of um, vessels with mm-hmm. uh, all kinds of sculptural vessels. And then I kind of morphed into doing more just cast sculptural pieces. Um, during the kind of decade that I was in state college. And um, I went to study with other people, um, Pat Hickman, who was head of the fibers department in, in Hawaii, and Dorothy Gill Barnes. Um, these are people who are big names in the kind of contemporary sculptural mm-hmm. basketry area. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, then uh, continued, you know, learning from various people in Dart Hunter. Elaine Koretsky came out and gave a workshop there. I think it was Pulp Spraying that we did. I was mostly working with flax and um, and cotton at that time. And, and so were you still um, just working off-site, or were you, did you have a, your own studio? Well, I always, always had my own studio okay. ever, you know, since I was in college. Uh-huh. And... Um, but had to use other people's equipment for beading. I ended up, you know, just having a whiz mixer and mm-hmm. being able to do a lot in the studio. Um, so um, were you sheet forming at all? Or yes, I was, sheet I was sheet and forming. Casting. I went from doing or, kind of abstract, um, I would cast sheets that weren't full sheets. So uh-huh. I was sort of sculpturally casting the sheets and then combining them collage fashion initially but then I really got enamored of working three-dimensionally and mm-hmm. so then I only went back to sheet forming pretty much when I was teaching paper making okay. so I started teaching paper making um, a lot then and also 
kind of taught myself book arts along mm-hmm. the way and started teaching book arts courses as well and taught a little bit um, through uh, some other faculty I knew at Penn State. And then I started teaching retreats, um, mm-hmm. so week-long retreats. And they were often had some other um, combination. It wasn't just technique. It was combined with other things. So for a long time I was teaching paper making as a metaphor for transformation. Mm -hmm. So it was more a mix of um, spiritual and artistic things coming together. Mm -hmm. And partly that came together because I was invited to teach at uh, Pendle Hill, which is a a national, it's like the biggest um, Quaker center in the United States. And um, I had been teaching art in Philadelphia for a long time at a, a Quaker school. That was the first job I had out of college. And, and Quaker schools are really very exciting, kind of progressive places. And I was able to develop any kind of curriculum mm. that I wanted. Mm-hmm. And so I incorporated handmade paper into that quite a bit. And um, so I could teach these week-long retreats at Pendle Hill and other places, and that became uh, a really important thing for me, kind mm-hmm. of looking at the all the Asian uh, traditions connected with hand paper making uh-huh. that were were right. spiritual, and um, and I learned a lot of that from Dart Hunter members who were traveling around the world right. recording all these things, and so I incorporated a lot of those into my teaching, um, and then. In 2000, we ended up moving to Boulder, and by this time I was, I had been married, I had, we adopted uh, our daughter when I was 40, mm-hmm. um, so lots of family life going right. on, and then we um, came out to Boulder because um, my, my husband's from Boulder, he was born here, and his family on both sides are from Colorado, and it had been a family base for us for a long time, so we've been visiting here um, very frequently, and we decided to come out here just for 10 months. We arranged our lives, Mm -hmm. and we sold a car and rented our house and came out here, and so we were just, you know, renting the space, and I didn't really have a studio, and I couldn't really take my whole studio with me, and so I had to figure out what to do. And so I decided to just pare down and sort of choose one thing to focus on during those 10 months. And I remember this little, you know, kind of fragment that came out of, um, I must have been doing Eastern sheep forming and I was beating Kozo. And I, I saved this little fragment that just did something unusual when I was in the process of beating it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I, you know, I should explore that more. And I kind of tucked it back. So when I, when I was coming to Boulder, I, I decided to just focus on Kozo uh-huh. because it's such a portable thing. I didn't need hardly any equipment. Right. And I could just cook it down outdoors and, you know, work with it because I had to adapt this woman's dining room to my studio. (laughs) And so I just worked on that all year and I'd made all these discoveries of how I could cast with it and and open it and work with it sculpturally um, and pigment it. And Mm. um, I was just really intrigued with what I discovered so then when we went back, um, so it turned out we ended up moving here permanently, uh-huh. and I went home and we sold the house and then moved everything out here. So I sold some of my paper-making equipment before I left, 
and then um, brought out what I what I have here now. And um, so I've just been working with Kozo pretty much as my primary material for it's been 17 years now that I've been here. Right. So um, so it's, it's been really exciting. Right. And so just explain the, um, so you do a little bit traditionally. You so cook I it prepare in the soda it ash. traditionally, yeah, uh-huh. uh, with soda ash. Um, I cook outdoors and then um, I take the kozo. Sometimes I do um, completely hand beat it and cast with the pulp, mm-hmm. but usually I will um, sort through it and choose pieces that have different characteristics I'm looking for. And because it really varies with Kozo, mm-hmm. what pieces you, you get and what the, you know, how, what the growing season was like and everything that contributed right. to how it turns out. And so um, I just very laboriously sit and open it, <laughs> um, you know, inch by inch. If you, if you just, you know, try to stretch it, it just rips, you uh-huh. know, so you have to open every little bit of the fiber to get that beautiful web structure inside. Um, and, and are so, you using, do you have like a favorite Koza that you use or do you have all different ones or? I have all different uh-huh. ones and I use them for different purposes. Uh-huh. So depending uh-huh. on what, what the project is that I'm working right. on, I'll choose um, which pulp to use. And, um, and so then I just um, have developed all these casting techniques primarily to work with it and pigmenting um, mm-hmm. to do what it is I'm aiming for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've tried to really push it, really develop, you know, really m- make it do what it's capable of doing, right. you know, at the extremes. And so even though it's, you know, somewhat of a fragile material when you look at it um, because it because the pieces I've developed can be really translucent, but they're also, as Kozo is, incredibly strong. Right. So I've I've pushed the limits of what where that strength will take you without just layering on, you know, sealers and varnishes and all these other things right. because that changes the surface quality. It makes it not um, that appealing to me. It mm-hmm, gives it, mm-hmm. you know, more sheen or... Or whatever, um, and when you open the kozo really, really fully, you know when you put on those sealants or varnishes or whatever, it fills in all those little spaces, mm-hmm. right? And so it gives it a much more you know reflective quality in the light. Right. right. So yeah. I've tried to really push what you can do with it um, in in a, keeping to the really natural look of the fiber, which I love. Right. And so let's talk a little about. Um, sort of the markets for your work. So I know you you sold through galleries some, maybe you still do, <clears throat> and then you've done a lot of installation work. So let's kind of talk about those. Okay, two. so I guess I started out just, you know, showing in the areas where I lived or getting into, you know, national juried shows and things like that. And then um, eventually I got into three different galleries around the country, um, one in L.A., one in Santa Fe, and one in Philadelphia, where I showed my work consistently for a number of years. And those galleries were all part of the um, SOFA exhibitions mm-hmm. in Chicago and New York, which is Sculptural Objects and Functional Art, mm-hmm. which is where there's a lot of exciting sculptural work going on and um I was really happy to be part of part of those exhibitions. Um, 
and um, and then and I've just shown a whole lot of different places. Right, Things sure. always come along every year, yeah. but um, when my work started to shift, when a lot of the galleries started shifting, when the U.S. was going through an economic downturn and you know, things started really changing. Um, and I started getting much more involved in doing environmentally related work, mm-hmm. um, which is now really important to me. It just feels like in these times, and especially now we're in 2017 <laughs> and uh, are going through some radical changes yeah. <laughs> in our government. Yeah, and, and so I feel like the, the climate change issue and the environmental issues are just all the more pertinent. Yes for artists to mm-hmm. speak out about. And so um, so I've been focusing on two different things. One is um, drought and um, the whole Western forests. You know, mm-hmm. living here in Colorado, a lot of our forests started being devastated by um, bark beetles because um, r- related to drought. And um, so they, uh, so I started kind of working with scientists, really trying to find out what was the latest research about Mm -hmm. these aspects that I was interested in, and then um, working alongside scientists if I could, um, learning and researching, and then developing the art out of what I was learning. Mm -hmm. Um, And then bringing that out in public gallery spaces where people could learn about the science through the art, you know, hoping that the art would draw them in through the right. visual beauty of it and they get intrigued and kind of sidestepping what happens to people when they're hit head on with environmental information mm-hmm. where, you mm-hmm. know, people sometimes it just is too overwhelming and they right. they can't stick with it. So I'm, I'm trying to use the art to help people mm-hmm. uh, come into those as well as, you know, continuing to develop myself as an artist and pursuing the the fine art aspects of what I'm doing. Right. So um, just describe a couple of pieces you made relating to the bark beetle. Uh, Let's see. I had a piece where um, I went out and sourced trees that showed heavy evidence of the bark beetle penetration in them. Mm -hmm. And so I made this forest, um, and it had little um, videos incorporated into Mm -hmm. it with... um, you know, close-up photos so you could and videos so you could see the bark beetles doing their work inside the mm-hmm. tree, and then I cast these big um, tree forms out of out of the uh, kozo fiber, and I also had a lot of pieces at that time that were related to the human impacts of dealing with insects and climate change because insects are changing um, where they exist now. Mm-hmm. You know, they're moving into territories where they haven't been before and humans are reacting to the presence right. of them. So I, I was casting whole heads or hands in Kozo and made all these Kozo insects and did big wall installations with those and mm. had the, the insects crawling on the, the hands and the heads. And we'll have a link to your website on this. Okay, podcast, yeah, so you can so see can look at all what of some of that is. Yeah. But then after a while, I... Um, I got a little, um, I'm still following all those stories, but in terms of my own art, I needed to shift to Mm -hmm. something, Mm -hmm. and um, I ended up um, just, you know, really looking globally at what's going on, 
um, not just locally what's happening here in the West. And I decided to work on um, issues related to our oceans. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was doing some kayaking up in the um, San Juan Islands off of um, Washington State and uh, started looking at this incredible form that I found underwater, which was uh, a kind of seaweed. Mm-hmm. And so I got really intrigued with the underwater world of seaweeds and thought that might be a good um, way to come into the ocean environmental issues. And so I ended up doing quite a bit of work with that, which I'm still working on now. Um, right. And I'm always so amazed at how, yeah, how in depth you go. <laughs> so you were getting seaweeds from all over the world, looking at their shapes, learning about them, talking yeah. to scientists again, traveling to yeah. meet and work with scientists. Yeah, it was very, very exciting doing field study off the coast of California, and I went to Ireland, and, you know, just really looking looking for stories. And I went to Hawaii and working on a piece now related to something I discovered in Hawaii and um, I'd like to go to Japan, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a lot more. There's a huge amount going on right now with seaweed environmentally, mm-hmm. yeah, and, yeah. and so um, there's quite a bit more to explore. Yeah, okay, and so let's just end with a little bit about your teaching at Naropa, and talk a little oh, yeah. about what okay. Naropa is, because it's okay. a well-known... Yeah. Place, but maybe not everybody knows. No, it's kind of an unusual <laughs> university. Um, it's uh, it it's about forty years old, and it started with a combination of um, Tibetan Buddhism and the beat poets. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very alternative university, um, but has full fledged you know undergrad and grad programs and so on. And and I've been teaching in the um, visual art department for about I think it's twelve years now. And um, I started out teaching book arts there, mm-hmm. um, and then I started teaching a course on ephemeral media, working three-dimensionally with ephemeral media, mm-hmm. and I incorporated paper making into that, as well as I teach about a lot of other natural materials, kind of more unusual ones. Um, and, then, um, and then I guess... Three years ago, I founded a course in eco-art, and mm-hmm. so I was able to really bring in this whole environmental direction in art. Um, so I really enjoy the students we get there and really have a lot of um, interest in what's going on in the whole university and all the, the different things that are part of it. It's a great community to right. be part of. Wonderful. Uh, and then I teach workshops in my studio right, and just had one, yeah. other places and try to, I'm trying to move the art into other, other venues, um, related to the environmental aspects. So I, like I showed my work at the natural history museum mm-hmm. and taught at the Sitka center for art and ecology mm-hmm. and, um, uh, also taught at the Honolulu Museum of Art um, and incorporated some seaweed into that. Right. Um, so it's interesting watching this all unfold. Yeah, yeah. When so what's coming up? Uh, well, I'm doing some new work um, related to kind of 
cultural traditions around seaweed that I'm uh -huh. discovering, an, an Irish one and this Hawaiian one that I'm working on. And um, I'm uh, working on getting to some destinations I'm, where I can show and teach. And so I'm looking at um, some things around Mendocino, California, mm -hmm. um, San Juan Islands, um, Portland, Maine, mm. uh, connecting with um, people in the seaweed uh, businesses there mm -hmm. and um, some of the scientists there. And, um, you know, going to places where people really know seaweed and see it in their everyday lives and um, working on issues with that. And then there's a, there's a group here in, in Boulder, actually, that's the um, Colorado Ocean Coalition, yeah. and they're sponsoring some of my work. And oh. so, uh, you know, trying to make ties with right. a, lot, a lot of different kinds of people, yeah. That's so wonderful and so important. Okay, well, it's been a pleasure, Jill. Thank Thanks, you so Helen. much. We'll talk soon. Okay. Take a look at her website. Jillpowers.com.